0: It's great to be back with you. It's always a delight to be at uh, Redeeming Grace. Congrats on the new building. Can I say that? It's maybe a little bit old for you now. I guess it's been what, about five weeks, but this is my first time here. I'm sure it feels great to be in a space this big and this accommodating. Um, now I want to start by having you turn to Matthew chapter five, which is going to be our text this morning. I know you've been in Joshua, so this is a bit of a, a bit of a turn. All right, But I want to um, spend some time with you this morning in what has, what has become one of my favorite passages in the Scriptures. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 43 to 48. So let me read them for you, and then we'll, we'll get started. Jesus says, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, as you probably know. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In this way you will be as sons of your Father in heaven, because he makes the sun to rise upon the evil and the good, and he sends rain upon the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you love your brothers only, what benefit do you have? Don't even the Gentiles, that is the pagans, do the same? Therefore you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this morning what I want to do with us is I'm not going to cover everything in this passage. There's quite a bit we could cover. And if we had more time, I'd try to set this in the larger context of the Sermon on the Mount. But for the sake of time, what I want to do is answer a question for you that none of you are asking. Okay? Now, this is the point where you're thinking, this is wonderful. Pastor John has brought in the professor, the smart guy, and he's going to confirm all of our worst stereotypes about professors. Yes? This is what professors do, right? We spend all of our time answering questions that no one is asking. The question this morning is, why is the weatherman a bad judge of character? But I'm going to try to convince you this morning that, in fact, this is a very good question, a question that you should be asking, and that the answer that you have, that you don't know that you have to this question, is, in fact, the wrong one. And I'm going to try to give you what I think is the right answer to this question, all right? So here's what I want to do with you this morning. I have three simple points. First, I want to tell you why I think your answer is wrong. Again, the answer you probably don't know that you even have. But why your answer is wrong. Second, I want to try to give you the right answer. And then I want us to think together for a few minutes together about how it matters and what we can do about it. All right, so first, what's the wrong answer, again, to this question that I know none of you are asking, all right? The wrong answer is that the weatherman is a bad judge of character for two reasons. One, because the weather doesn't matter, and the weather just happens. Because the weather doesn't matter, and the weather just happens. And I'm going to answer these in reverse order, okay? So let's look at the first one. The weather just happens. The weatherman is a bad judge of character because the weather just happens. Alright. Now to do this, I actually gonna need you to turn to another part of the Bible. Okay, I don't normally preach from two passages, but this morning I want you to look at Psalm 104 with me, just for a minute as we begin. Okay? On this first point. And just look with me at Psalm 104. Alright. This is known as a creation psalm. It's a little bit different than some of the other creation psalms. Again, we're not gonna go through the whole thing. But turn in your Bible to Psalm 104. Verses 14 to 23, this is on page 503 if you're using one of the, the Black Pew Bibles, all right? So starting verse 14, the psalmist says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Now, this is a pretty typical praise hymn from the Psalms. But I struggled with this psalm for a long time in my life. And the reason is really simple why I had a hard time with Psalm 104. Okay, The simple reason is that I have watched too much Discovery Channel over the years. Right, so that when the psalmist says that plant, that God plants the cedars of Lebanon, or the sun knows its setting, or the lions seek their food from God, I thought to myself when I was younger, I thought about this psalm and I thought, what could that possibly mean? I know that trees grow from seeds, and the cedars of Lebanon are no different, right? And I know the sun does not think about when to set. The sun, as you may know, is a giant ball of burning gas, (laughs) and it happens to be stationary. It doesn't even set. It just sits there while the earth revolves on its axis every day, and I've watched enough Discovery Channel to know how lions hunt, and they certainly don't seek their food from God, as far as I can tell. They seek it from the gazelles that they eat. I mean, as I thought about this psalm, at one point I got really sort of deep into this way of thinking, and I thought to myself, you know, it's not like... When the lions go out to hunt and the Discovery Channel, you know, the photographers are filming it. The lion goes out to hunt and he's creeping up on a gazelle. And he just gets to the point where he's ready to pounce. And then all of a sudden the, gal just, the gazelle just runs off. And then like a giant zookeeper hand comes down from heaven, you know, and feeds the lion. Like, like lions hunt for their food, right? We all know this. And we know why the grass is green. I learned about photosynthesis in sixth grade. The sun hits the chloroform and turns, the food, turns it into food for a plant. That's just how it happens. You see, the problem I had was when I read Psalm 104, I kind of felt like a professor in one of my favorite cartoons. The professor is standing at the chalkboard with his student, and the student is just sort of off to his left behind him, and there's a big chalkboard, and on the chalkboard are three steps to a very complicated math problem. In step one here, there's all sorts of math calculations and symbols. Everything looks good as far as the professor is concerned. There in step three, the final step, everything looks good. Lots more symbols, lots more calculations. Okay. But the problem is in step two, right there in the middle, where this professor is pointing. Because there the student has written in big, all capital letters with chalk, then a miracle occurs. And the professor, not wanting to, you know, quelch his, uh, pupil, says with a bit of understatement, I think you should be more explicit here in step two. See, that's kind of how I felt reading Psalm 104 is that it seemed to me like the psalmist should have been a bit more explicit. Say in verse 27, there's a little more to grass growing and trees being planted and the sun's rising and lions hunting than a miracle happens, isn't there? So what I did, I was a seminarian at the time, I was studying this psalm and thinking about this difficult question. I came with what I thought was a solution. I thought, well, you know what? The psalmist lived a long time ago. He didn't have the discovery channel. So it's just poetry, right? It's just poetry. It's just the way ancient people thought about the world that they didn't know very much about. Today we have modern science. We know so much more about how nature works that now we know better than to say things like the sun knows its setting. You know, it's just poetry. No big deal, you know? Psalms didn't have Galileo's telescope, Newton's notebooks, or Jane Goodall's monkeys, right? Now, as I say, that's how I used to think about this text until one day something that should have been very obvious to me, (laughs) hit me. I thought a bit more about it, and I thought to myself, Peter, how do you know how lions hunt? And I had to think about it, and I thought, well, like I said, it's from the Discovery Channel. The only time I've ever seen a lion hunt is sitting in the comfort and safety of my living room, yes, (laughs) watching it on TV. And then I had to ask myself a follow-up question. How did the psalmist know how lions hunt? Because he was the one being hunted, (laughs) right? And then it started to hit me, wait a minute, maybe the psalmist doesn't use this language because he's dumber than I am, because he doesn't have modern science to tell about how all these things work. Maybe actually I'm the one with the problem. Maybe I'm the one whose life is so detached from the natural rhythms of creation that I'm the one who've missed things about nature. That maybe the psalmist, because he lived in a world without electric lights, maybe actually he had seen the stars better than I had. Because he was the one, as David does, had to, maybe he was the one who had to protect his own sheep from lions. He had a little bit better sense than I do of how lions actually hunt. Do you see? And yet, The psalmist, knowing better than I do about how nature works, still says, still wrote, the lions seek their food from God. And the psalmist still chose to wrote that the sun knows its setting. Friends, think about the sun. This one really embarrassed me once I thought about it. Once I started down this train of thought, you see, I I dealt with the lions. Then I started to think about the sun, and I had to think, well, how does the psalmist know when the sun sets? Because he could see it every single day the same way I... You, know, you see, what I'm getting those. ask yourself this question. Is the sun somehow more regular today than it was 2,000-plus years ago when the psalmist wrote this psalm? It's not. I don't need an iPhone to tell me the sun is going to set tonight, do I? <laughs> and neither did the psalmist. But he still chose to say, the sun knows its setting. You see, I think the psalmist actually knew something that we, in our scientific age, have forgotten. We have science to tell us how things work. And I actually think that sometimes the fact that we know so much about how things works makes us dumber. It actually makes us forget about the why. Why do things work the way they do? Not how. Not how does the earth revolve around the sun, but why does it? You see, the psalmist, I think, knew something we've forgotten. He knew that the repetition and predictability of nature does not mean lifelessness. They don't mean that God's not involved because you can predict it. I think no one has gotten at this sense of what we have forgotten today in our modern scientific age better than a British uh, apologist named G.K. Chesterton. He makes quite a point about this in his book, Orthodoxy. He has this wonderful quote where he offers an excellent example of children. Imagine a small child okay, that loves to kick its its legs over and over again or who wants you to swing him around and around or throw him up in the air. When you throw the child up in the air once, does the child say, that's enough? And you do it twice, does the child say, okay, I'm done? You do it 15 times and what does the child want? Do it again, the child says, right? Chesterton recognizes that the child's love of repetition is not due to lifelessness. In fact, the child's love of repetition is due to an overabundance of life and energy. So Chesterton writes this. He says, children always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps Chesterton says God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening God says to the moon again, do it again. You see, the sun does not just rise. The trees do not just go to seed. Lions don't just hunt because that's what lions do. No. What the psalmist is trying to get us to see in a world that was just as regular as ours is, is that the world we live in is shot through with the joyful, delighted hand of a God who is anything but lifeless. You see, it's not that God is involved in the parts of creation that we can't explain. It's rather that God is involved in all the parts that we think we can. It's the parts on our chalkboard that have the equations on them and the parts of our chalkboard that say, then a miracle happens. God is involved in all of them. And the repetition that we find in nature is not due to boredom on his part, but to an abundance of life and joy and excitement for all that God has made. Now to return to our question, why is a weatherman a bad judge of character? The first thing I said is because our answer is the weather just happens. And hopefully I've started to convince you that we should not think of the world in those terms. We should not think of the world as somehow lifeless, but we should think of it as shot through with the good hand of God. He's the one who makes the sun to rise. He's the one who makes the moon to set. But then we come to the second part of it. We said, well, the weather doesn't really matter, does it? Supposing the sun does come up regularly because God likes it so much. What moral significance could that have? What does the weather man have to do with morality? What does the weather have to do with morality? To answer that, I think we need to think a bit more about Jesus' two examples in our passage in Matthew 5. So go back then in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 and notice that Jesus uses the example of rain and sunshine. Now, as I said, I I don't have time to unpack the whole thing, and part of that's because this text is so familiar to us. In fact, this passage is one, or at least the the basic command in this passage, I think is one that's familiar, especially even to non-Christians, right? In fact, I think it's fair to say that of all the commands that Jesus gives us in the Bible, this one, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, is probably the most famous and maybe even the most influential in Western history. As hard as it is, it's one that has really shaped us. And I think even non Christians, when they hear this command, they sit up and take notice. I don't have an example offhand, but even atheists, I think, will look at this command of Jesus and say, Okay, we think you Christians are pretty crazy for believing the stuff that you do, but we do recognize that this loving your enemy thing, that's a pretty big deal. You can't really find that anywhere else. You don't really get that outside of the Bible. Loving your friends? Okay, well, that's, that's obvious, right? I mean, that's what Jesus says. He says, if you, greet, if you greet your friends, that's not a surprise at all. It's not that it's bad. Okay. If you're friends with people who have shared interests with you, right? There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just perfectly normal. But to love your enemies, to pray for those who are actively trying to harm you. Friends, I think even atheists would recognize that here we have what is the high point of Jesus' teaching. Who can do this? This is incredible. This is incredible. That's really impressive. Now, here's what I think is so striking, then, about the examples that Jesus has used. To see why, pretend with me for a moment. Okay, this is going to be a little bit hard, but, but work with me. Okay, Pretend that you are Jesus. Okay, Pretend that you are preaching the Sermon on the Mount. This is going to be your best sermon. Okay, this is like your best material that you've got. Okay, And and you are going to get to the point, you're, you know you're coming to this point, we're going to tell your followers to love their enemies. You know this is going to be the hardest, the most radical command of anything you're going to tell them. And you know that you're going to need to give them a good example and a strong motivation for this, because this is it. This is, this is the high point. It doesn't get harder than this. It doesn't get more surprising, more shocking, more unexpected than this. You're going to use an example of the way that God loves his enemies. What example of the way that God loves his enemies do you reach for at that moment? Just think about it. What example would you use? If somebody asked you, how can Christians love their enemies? And you said, well, it's because we want to be like God. We want to be known as his children. And that's what God does. So we want to reflect his character. What example of God loving his enemies would you then give? I know which one I would give. I would say, well... God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. I'd point to the cross. I'd point to redemption and say, what greater example could you possibly find of the way that God loves his enemies, the extent to which he loves his enemy, than the cross of Christ? And then you go back to our text and you see that Jesus pulls the example of rain? (laughs) Sunshine? I mean, is this just like a whiff? Is this just like Jesus? He was winding up and this was looking great and then pff, strike, strike out. He missed it. He should have drawn for the cross and he went for rain and sunshine. Come on. I mean, look, I, you know, I live in Phoenix like you. I love it when the monsoon comes in. My kids go out to play at the first rain of monsoon season, just like yours do. Cause we love the rain here in Phoenix. We pray for more. We need more of it, right? And, good, you know, Lord knows we've got plenty of sunshine. We don't need any more of that, OK? <clears throat> rain and sunshine. Friends, I think to see the full power of Jesus' illustration, we need to remember that he wasn't speaking to a crowd who shopped at Fry's. Many of in his audience would have been farmers, and they were more obviously dependent on rain and sunshine for their daily needs than you and I are. But frankly, if you stop and think about it, you and I are actually not any less dependent on rain and sunshine than they were. We may be less aware of our dependency, but we are not less dependent on it. Think about what you ate for breakfast this morning before you came to church. Maybe you had a bagel or maybe you had some toast. Well, where did those come from? They're made out of wheat. Well, where did the wheat come from? What had to grow. Well, what made the wheat grow? Wasn't it rain and sunshine? Maybe you had orange juice and some eggs. What do chickens eat and what do oranges need to grow? At some level, they need water and sunshine. And as you start to think about lunch later this later today, and you're, maybe you're going to go out and have a burger. Where will that come from? From cows that drink water. <laughs> and they eat food that grows with rain and sunshine. The lettuce on your burger. On and on and on. We could go. Everything you eat is still dependent completely on rain and sunshine. Rain and sunshine. And I think that what we should do here at this point is to to realize that Jesus is giving us two two examples of a principle. Two examples of a principle. And we could expand the examples then once we recognize the principle to see that what Jesus is talking about is all the ways in which humans benefit from the regularity of God's universe. Think about it. Your best friend is able to crack a smile and laugh at your jokes because her lungs ordinarily fill with air. You carry a sleeping daughter up the stairs to bed because ordinarily gravity keeps your feet on the ground. Perhaps later this summer you're going to take your family on a road trip up to Sedona, because ordinarily gasoline is combustible. Think about it. Once you start to think of the principle, the examples are endless, aren't they? Of the ways in which we receive so many wonderful blessings that are dependent on the ordinary things of God's creation that just happen. (laughs) Right? Samuel Clark who is a Christian uh, scientist wrote that what men commonly call the course of nature is nothing else but the will of God producing certain effects in a continued regular constant and uniform manner. You see one reason why I think that that rain and sunshine matter and the reason why we're tempted to think that Jesus example is kind of lame is that we tend to be impressed with the flashy and the irregular and the extraordinary and the unusual. Yeah? But I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus is not. That Jesus is profoundly impressed by the ordinary things of God's creation. Perhaps Jesus is more like a man named John Witherspoon. Witherspoon was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and he later would become the president of the College of New Jersey, what you and I know as Princeton University. And Witherspoon lived a couple miles from the college at Rocky Hill, there at Princeton, and drove a horse and rig each day to his office at the college. And one day, one of his neighbors burst into his office exclaiming, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to God for his extraordinary providence. In saving my life, for I was driving from Rocky Hill, and the horse ran away, and the buggy was smashed to pieces on the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. And Witherspoon looked at him, and Witherspoon said, why, I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. Classic man, right? He wants to one-up him. (laughs) But he says, I have driven over that road hundreds of times. My horse never ran away, my buggy was never smashed, I was never hurt. So we must beware of thinking that God is only in the earthquake, the wind, or the fire, or thinking that manna but not grain is God's food. Most of God's gifts, it turns out, come to his people. They are not dazzling and gaudy, but they are wrapped in simple brown paper. Quiet provisions of safety on the highway, health of children, picking up a paycheck, supper with the family, all in an ordinary day's work our God. I realized this one time where a a guy said to me, a mentor said to me, he said, Peter, you know, I realized one day that when my family goes on a long trip, we always stop and pray for safety. But every day when I get in my car to go to work, I never think to stop and pray. Why? Do I think that somehow I only need God's help on long trips? (laughs) It's only if the car is going to drive so many miles in a single day that I need God's help. You see, friends, rain and sunshine matter after all. And the principle extends even farther than rain and sunshine to the innumerable ways that you and I benefit day after day, night after night, from the regularity of God's incredible universe. So come back to our question again. Why is the weatherman a bad judge of character? Well, we've come with two wrong answers, haven't we? One wrong answer to say, the weather doesn't matter. But in fact, as we've seen, our whole lives depend on rain and sunshine, don't they? And the second wrong answer is to say, they just happen. But we've seen that no. In fact, as Jesus says, God makes the sun to rise and he sends his rain. Now we are ready to start thinking about the right answer that Jesus gives us to the question. Why is the weatherman a bad judge of character? The first reason is because God loves his enemies. God loves his enemies. Think about who benefits from the regularity of our universe. Is it just you and me? Is it just people who've been willing to get up at eight in the morning and show up at church on nine? What about all the people that are still sleeping at home (laughs) and thought, nah, it's not worth it. They're going to benefit too. And that then brings us to the real full answer. The real full answer is not just that God loves his enemies. It's that God loves indiscriminately. The love of God that is poured out day after day, night after night, in the regularity of his creation that he is involved in, is shown incredibly to the good and the bad alike. Think about it. When the monsoon rains do come, which we hope they will come in due course this summer, And you've been coming to church faithfully all June, waiting for the rains to come, and your neighbor's been sleeping in every Sunday. And those those storms roll in, they're going to dump water on your yard, right? And then completely pass over his? Or think about the pools that we enjoy here in Phoenix. Think about the physics that are involved in the evaporative effect that we all benefit from in Arizona. I was amazed when I moved here to Arizona how much, how great pools are here. I lived in Dallas, Texas before this and pools do not, are not as great there because they have humidity. That evaporative effect that makes it so wonderful to get in the pool on a hot June day. It's only Christians that enjoy the evaporative effect, right? <laughs> like, have you ever gone to the pool and be like, that guy's a sinner. <laughs> that guy's definitely cheating on his wife. You can't tell you can't tell is it because God doesn't have any enemies it's not is it because there's no difference between the just and the unjust after all that we're all just alike in God's eyes it's not Jesus's entire teaching the very shock of his teaching depends fundamentally on the fact that there are good and bad relatively speaking right we know this. Now, in God's eyes, we're all sinners. We all need redemption. That we know. But at the human level, we know there are real differences between good and bad, aren't there? That's why we have jails and prisons and fines. Because we know, relatively speaking, not absolutely speaking in terms of God's law, but in terms of our human laws, there are good and there are bad. And you have never been able to tell from the regularity of God's creation who those people are, why? The answer is not because nature just happens. The answer is not because nature doesn't bring us any benefits. We've seen that both of those are untrue. The real answer why you and I cannot tell, and the real answer why the the weatherman makes a bad judge of character, is because God, day after day, is pouring out his love on friend and and enemy alike, and you've never been able to see the the difference between them from the blessings they receive from that regularity. Day after day, God's pouring out his love on all people. And again, the most amazing thing is you cannot tell. That, friends, is the kind of love that Jesus calls us to be like in imitating our Father in heaven by showering those around us with love and concern for their well-being, even those who want what's worst for us, even our enemies. And he wants us to do it all with a kind of blissful lack of awareness about whether they deserve it or not. So now I want you to think then for with me for, for our last few minutes together about what we do with this. What do we do with this? First, I want to talk to any who are in this room who are non-believers, and then I'll talk to those of us who are believers, who've trusted Christ. First, if you're a non-believer, you may be sitting here now this morning going, oh my goodness, (laughs) I think I might be in the category of God's enemies. And I have never thought until this moment about just how much God is loving me, not because he thinks I'm so great, but actually in spite of how bad I am, that I'm actually in that category of God's enemies. Friends, now I do want to point you to that other form that God's love for his enemy takes and remind you this morning that God did love his enemies so much that he sent his son to die for his enemies. And that that, that blessing of salvation far exceeds any blessing that you get from rain and sunshine and that is offered to you because of the work of Christ on the cross. Matthew's gospel, of course, does not stop here in Matthew 5, does it? It keeps going, and it culminates in that greatest act of God's love for his enemies, in Jesus Christ dying to take upon him the punishment and the judgment that you and I deserve. Friends, God loves you. He has loved you day after day after day. And part of the guilt that you labor under as an unbeliever is the guilt of not thanking God for all those blessings. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to die the death that you deserve and to turn God's enemies into his friends. And that opportunity is open to you this morning. I would love to talk more with you after the service about what that means and all that that entails. Now, what if you are a person who said, I was an enemy of God? I was in that category. And I'm here this morning precisely because God got a hold of my life. He made me aware of what kind of an enemy I was, and he turned my heart toward Christ to see the beauty of Christ, to repent and trust in Christ. What do I do with this? Because, boy, you're talking to me about loving my enemies in the way God loves his enemies, and I don't feel up to it. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can really do this. Let me give you two words of encouragement. First is, I think what we can do as Christians to help us do this better, we can certainly do what I've just talked about, remind ourselves of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross to turn us from enemies into friends. But I want to suggest to you that probably the first thing that you can do to start thinking about this more is rekindle your wonder in God's creation. Rekindle the wonder in God's quiet providences in your life. Many of you here are just like I was when I first started thinking about our text this morning, and many of you are like I was when I read Psalm 104. You read it and you thought, this just seems silly. This this must just be poetry. And I want you to see that it's not just poetry. I want you to rekindle the wonder. Don't just shrug your shoulders when Jesus says he makes his sun to rise and he sends his rain. But be amazed at God's predictable providences in your life. I'll give you a, a personal story from this. Uh, when I was in seminary, my wife and I were like most seminary students. We had very little money. Um, we could barely make ends meet. And we had neighbors across our hallway that were the same way. And, and our neighbors um, just always had these incredible stories of God's provision. Like, I remember one time they were re- they couldn't make their seminary payment. They were past due. And my friend, who was the seminarian, he just happened to be in, a, in the, um, the fundraising office that day and was, was telling about his need, and he left. And, and his payment was due for tuition that week. <clears throat> and he gets a call later that day. A donor had called into the seminary and said, I just want to give some money to a student who needs it, and I want to give him this amount. And do you want to know what the amount was? It was the exact amount he needed. Another time, somebody slid under their doorway the exact amount they needed to make their payment. I mean, just incredible provisions on their part. And my wife would sometimes struggle with this and think, well, how come these things don't happen to us? Because you know how God provided for me to pay for seminary? I was a web designer, and I created a website for my web designs. And sometimes people would, I guess, Google it and they would find my website or they'd talk to somebody who I designed a website for. They would do this crazy thing. They would go to my website. They would send me an email. I would then talk to them about designing a website for them. I would convince them that they needed it. They would be convinced that I should do it for them. I would then do it for them. They would usually be happy with it. And they would send me a check. And I finally said to my wife, Do we think that God only provides for our neighbors because he does it in some incredible way? (laughs) But somehow God is not providing for us because he does it in an ordinary way? No, friends, what I had to come to realize, what my wife and I had to come to realize, was God provided for us just as much as he provided for our neighbors across the hall, even though he did it in very ordinary, typical ways. Let me finish the Chesterton quote for you that I started earlier. Explaining why God is so regular in so much of his interaction with creation, Chesterton says, It may be that God has the eternal appetite for infancy. For we have all sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we are. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. (laughs) God just loves it. He Justin goes on to say, God makes all daisies alike, not because he can't think of how to make a new flower, but because he makes one. And he goes, that's amazing. I should make another one. And so he does. Let me give you a really practical thing, okay? Pastor John is not paying me to say this, okay? You know one of the best ways to rekindle your wonder in God's ordinary providence and creation? Work with the children in this church. Work with the children in this church. Because you know who's better than we are at seeing the wonder of creation? Little kids. Just last night, my two-year-old had his uh, his birthday, and you kind of two is kind of the first birthday where they really have some sense of what's going on. One, they're just smashing cupcakes, right? Um, but this is the first time he had two candles on his cake, and everybody sang to him. And and friends, the way that kid's eyes lit up at seeing those two little candles flicker and getting to blow them out, you would have thought the entire world belonged to him because he just loved it. Friends, work with the kids get involved in kids ministry and watch the way they see the world and start to imitate them secondly lastly retire your, your 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 moral calculator it's not enough to be amazed with god's providence we need to be amazed at how indiscriminate so much of it is recognize as you start to rekindle that wonder and see how incredible god's regular providences are then start to act, then start to watch for how indiscriminate that they are how many people who are God's enemies, and he really does have enemies, just like you do? In fact, I think, I'm not going to go into it, but I think one of the, one of the first things we need to do to apply this text to our lives, <laughs> and I include myself in this, as Christians, we need to admit that we actually have enemies. I think a lot of Christians try to make this passage easier for them, I know I do, by pretending like I don't actually have any enemies. But in fact, I think as Christians, we will and we do. So retire your moral calculator. Recognize how indiscriminate God's love for his enemies is. And finally, but very br- briefly and attached to that first point, renew your gratitude. As you start to see how much you benefit from God's incredible, ordinary pro- providences, thank him for it. Make gratitude a habit in your life. It's always been striking to me. That in, in Romans chapter, chapter one, that incredible passage, that, that, that horrible indictment of humanity for our sin, that the two sins that, that Paul leads out with, it's not sexual sin, it's not greed, it's idolatry, and then the second one that follows directly from that is ingratitude. He says they do not thank him as they ought. Friends, it's one of the, one of, one of the marks of our, of our failure as sinners that we do not thank God as we do. So as you rekindle the wonder, as you set aside your moral calculator and love even your enemies, the third thing to do is renew your gratitude. Thank God for his marvelous, ordinary providences. So back to our question. As I said, you were not asking when you walked in this morning. Perhaps you're starting to ask it now, though. Why does the weatherman make a bad judge of character? It's not because the weather just happens, and it's not because the weather doesn't matter. It's because God loves his enemies. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are astonished at the ways in which you love all of us, good and bad alike, That this morning we were able to get up. We knew it was end of May heading into June because the sun is a little bit hotter. And we think of all the enormous benefits that we get as your creatures from the regularity of your universe. The fact that the way the earth moves around the sun gives us our seasons. Now we're about to head into summer, but summer will pass into fall and winter because you love the just and the unjust. Oh God, we pray, amaze us with the incredible benefits that you give us through that regularity and make us a people who are like our heavenly father, who people look at and say, they are children of that God because like God, they love their enemies in incredible ways. Amen.